The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. We live in a, in a day and a time when a company exists. So a company exists to make money. I learned that in college. Okay. They exist to make money with this motto. Life is short, have an affair. I read an interview this week with a man who ran that company and exists to connect married men and women and discreetly enable them to have affairs. And the interview for this man took place before kind of the secret list of those subscribers, which at the time of this interview was 24 million were exposed to the world. But when he was asked about the reasoning for starting a business like this, he first turned to just hard data. He said that in a lifetime of a relationship, the ma- on the male side, close to 70 to 80 percent of men are going to be unfaithful at some point or another. And the female side is, in, is increasingly on the rise, well past 40 percent. But then more than percentages in data, he pointed to biology. He said ultimately he believed that the human race is not biologically programmed to remain faithful. Quote, people have affairs because we're not engineered for monogamy. He said monogamy didn't come about from some great scientific research. If anything, the current social science tells us the opposite. But then the real success of the business website is centered around secrecy. He says, so the, the, the perfect affair is not only meeting someone like-minded, it's also being able to not be discovered. That's what I've built. A platform where everybody here has put up their hand and said, I'm interested in an affair and the technology to keep it discreet. And so in response to to charges of immorality, which he's received many, uh, he says he believes he's actually helping marriages. So the precise act of having an affair without getting caught can actually help save a marriage, he says, when the only other option would be divorce. Now, there's plenty of worldview issues we could, we could dissect from that interview and from those, those statements. But I just thought it was interesting the way that he differentiated between the act of adultery and the act of divorce. Seeing that he would want to avoid divorce at all costs. In fact, on a personal note, he said, I would never want a divorce from my own wife, but I would be open to having an affair if marriage became bad at some point. So as long as this outward public image of fidelity is intact... Whatever happens in secret is essentially fair game. Of course, we should should hate things like this and rejoice when they're exposed and go away. But we also need to think carefully about how and why they exist. It's profitable. This is a profitable business. Like, how is this kind of thinking, outward appearance and inward desire, how does those two things go together in a biblical worldview? And so for this, we turn to Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust in the human heart uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus begun a series of illustrations that describe a righteousness that flows from hearts that have been made new by the new birth, being born again. And he's, he's contradicting the popular teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees that tended to obscure the true meaning behind the commands of the law. To suit their practice. And so last week we saw how Jesus undercut the scribes' kind of interpretation that the command not to murder only really applies to homicide. 
But he revealed the true heart behind murder was actually anger. And, and being angry with your brother renders us guilty and liable to the fires of hell. Murder is the fruit, anger is the root, Jesus says. And then this morning, Jesus will do the same thing with this commandment against adultery by revealing the source of the symptom, the the seed of adultery, Jesus says, is lust. So the main point of this passage is this. Because of the renewal of our hearts through the new covenant, disciples of Jesus are radically, those who radically pursue purity of heart. Not just outward actions of faithfulness, but radically pursue purity of heart by the power of the Spirit. We are those who have been given new hearts. Those of us who know Him have been born again. And now are called to pursue purity of heart by God's grace and through God's strength. So we're going to make some observations from this passage. And you'll see those listed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, Number one, the first thing you want to see is that we just want to observe the sin of adultery there in verse 27. The sin of adultery. Number two, we want to to see the seed of adultery. The seed of adultery. We see that in verse 28. And then finally, number three, the antidote to adultery. Verses 29 and 30. The antidote to adultery. So here again, we're, we're considering what Jesus means and that he means to fulfill the law on our behalf, not to abolish it. That we might live in such a way that gives glory to our Father who is in heaven. And we know that from what, the way Jesus is talking, that is more than just a matter of conduct. It's a matter of an issue of the heart. So let's, let's consider this together. Let's look first at the sin of adultery itself. Number one. The sin of adultery. So Jesus now turns from the sixth commandment to the seventh. And he's confronting the the current religious leaders teaching on this sin of adultery. So there in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And last, last time we said that Jesus is going through these six antithesis or six contradictions, you might, you might say, exposing the true meaning behind the law and the legalistic interpretation that the scribes and the Pharisees were kind of going after. And so when he says, you have heard it said, he's not directly contradicting the law, he's contradicting that interpretation, which for, for in this situation w- would be a kind of a conveniently narrow view of sexual sin. Don't commit adultery. That's the line you should not cross. And also a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. So if you don't cross that line, then you, you're, you're doing well. Uh, so take a text like Leviticus 20 verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Well, some scribes would would read that and they would argue there for a very technical definition of adultery. So it's it's a sexual act with the wife of one's neighbor. So that's a wife of a fellow Israelite. So if there was adultery committed, say, with the wife of a Gentile, that would technically not constitute a breaking of God's law. So when you're looking for loopholes like that in your life, you know you're not in a good place, okay? And so Jesus is going to go on to explode that kind of thinking 
there in verse, later in verse 28, not to, not to, to just expose this sort of technical obedience, but then to even go deeper into the, the heart of our kind of the blackness that's there um, that's caused by sin. But before we get into that, I just think it's necessary to just be reminded Jesus is not contradicting the command that says don't commit adultery. If he were, he would say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, live it up. Life is short. Have an affair. Go follow your heart. After all, it's, about, it's all about your love. And, and falling in love, you really can't control that. Jesus is not doing that, is he? He's not encouraging affairs. He's actually upholding marriage. And we're going to say more on that next week. But adultery is a direct betrayal of this lifelong exclusive loyalty that exists between a man and a woman in marriage. Just consider that, just as we're considering these things and thinking about these things in 2018, it warranted the death penalty under the Old Covenant, and today it is a profitable business. So we need to, as we're listening and thinking about this, that's, the, that's our environment. This, now, this would have been the primary temptation in Jesus's day, as people were typically married younger. Um, so, so fornication or sexual sin other than adultery wasn't as common. Now, you might say we, we've, we're in a situation that's maybe 180 degrees the opposite way. People are getting married traditionally later, and temptation toward fornication is easy as picking up a phone or looking up a website. So, beloved, as we look at what God prohibits here in this passage, let us not forget what he also intends. That, that sexuality is a gift from God, a good gift from God. The Song of Solomon is an inspired book in the Bible. Praise the Lord. And it's to be expressed and celebrated within the boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Yet like all good things, sexuality must be expressed in the right way, at the right place, and in the right time. Like, just like food is good, but it can be an idol. It can be abused. Sleep is good, but you can sleep too much or sleep at inappropriate times. In the sermon. So we need to be clear, especially today, that marriage is a gift from God. Uh, so is singleness, a gift from God. And it's by God's design between one man and one woman. That's the only appropriate context for sexual expression. As it represents more than a physical union, but a spiritual union. So, so Lewis Smedes says it this way. He says, when two bodies are united, two persons are united. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The soul is in the act. So by upholding and defining marriage as the only God-honoring expression of sexuality, Jesus condemns all other expressions as sinful. They're outside of God's good plan. So therefore, all extramarital sex or, or other perverse versions of it are essentially attempts at redefining God's good gift in our own terms. It allows for the indulgence in a life Kind of the life-uniting act without the life-uniting intent. Indulging in the life-uniting act without the life-uniting intent. That includes premarital sex before marriage. It includes homosexual unions. It includes the use of pornography. 
Sexual expression belongs inside the loving commitment and safety of marriage. And we want to uphold that reality at our church. We want to make really clear where we stand on where, where, what, a, what a marriage is and what it looks like and, and how God receives glory from that. At the same time, we want to understand and acknowledge that we live in a broken world where everyone, everyone is affected by sin. And everyone is, is struggling to, 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 to grapple with, with the, these truths that Jesus is teaching on, on lust and on adultery and on who we are as a man or as a woman. And so we want the church to be a place that is, that is very clear about what God's intention is and also opening the doors like a hospital would for the sick who are struggling. Who are, who are struggling with uh, maybe same-sex attraction or, or gender confusion or this or maybe an out-of-control heart of, of lust toward one area or another. Not to be a place that says you must... In order to be in this, in this room, you have to be um, free of all these issues and not be struggling. But no, upholding the glory of God and his intention and also saying, the answer is in Christ. Come here with this other group of broken people who have found the answer, have found Jesus, are being slowly transformed for his glory. We want you, if you're struggling, to struggle here with us. And to see the clear truth of what God says and then respond to that as you're in this loving community who are pointing, pointing you, we pray, to Jesus. So if you're single, we, we, we pray for you regularly that you would be married, if that's God's will for you. Or that if you're, if you're called to, to being single, that you would be thriving in that situation for God's glory. After all, Paul says uh, that's even better. Singleness does not equate to an incomplete life. Just ask Jesus, the, the, the perfect man who was never married. Fully man, fully God. Not incomplete. And if you're married, we want you to stay married and thrive in that relationship that's designed to be a megaphone to the world, shouting the beauty of the gospel. So, so marriage and these cl- clarity on gender roles and the, the right expression of sexuality, those are all things under attack in our day. And if you're in this room and if you've been in some way affected by these things or affected by the sin of adultery, either by your spouse or maybe by your own sin, the good news is that Jesus offers complete and total forgiveness and restoration. A new start for you. Uh, If you don't believe me, just read the the people that normally just kind of cling and hang out with Jesus. He came to save sinners. And... As we're about to learn, adultery defined by Jesus is actually a heart issue before it's a body issue. So no one in this room would throw stones at you anyway because we deserve the same stones. And so not only do we want to hold up God's plan for the right expression of God's gift of sexuality, but we want to see the heart behind that plan that's rooted in the gospel. And so that takes us to the next observation, number two, the seed of adultery. The seed of adultery. And if we're, listen, if we're trying to make a case for our own self-righteousness, that I'm actually a pretty good person, I kind of have it going on. I ha- I'm doing fine. The Sermon on the Mount is a great place for you to destroy that kind of thinking. 
Jesus, again, just reveals the heart behind the act and shows that, in fact, that actually makes us guilty before God. Verse 28. But I say to you, you've heard it said, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, friends, we need Christ, don't we? Reading things like this remind us how much we need Christ. Where else will we go? Think first about exactly what Jesus is saying. He's not saying men and women shouldn't look at each other. You should walk out of here and just close your eyes. No, he has a certain look in mind, doesn't he? This is not a fleeting look. This is a present participle. It would be translated, everyone who keeps on looking. It's a sensual stare, a kind of lustful gawking. And I think the difference between looking and lusting needs little explanation. I think we all know exactly what that difference is. There's a normal and even a good attraction that exists between men and women, and it it culminates in in marriage. Lust is a perversion of that good intent for the selfish purposes of, of sexual gratification. Really, you might say Jesus is interpreting the seventh commandment in light of the tenth commandment. So, seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Tenth commandment, you shall not covet. And if you read Deuteronomy 5, the first application of not coveting, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, we also need to say that Jesus' intent here isn't to make um, adultery and lust somehow exactly the same. Okay, sometimes we maybe read that and we're we're kind of thinking of just a a real wooden equation here. I don't think that's what he's doing. Jesus, uh, for example, told Pilate when Pilate was was talking to him and accusing him that that obviously Pilate has sinned in in judging the, the Son of God, but the one who delivered Jesus over to Pilate had the greater sin. John 19, 11. So I don't think we want to equate everything as completely the same. So adultery would have a, a, a certain kind of destructive public effect that, that an, an inward lust would not. But in terms of our own righteous standing before God, Jesus says that our inward lust, even secret lust, condemns us to hell. That's all it takes. It's the, same, it's the same effect that adultery has. So we can't say to an adulterer, oh, I'm just glad I'm not as bad as you. It's like we can't say to a murderer, at least while I'm not in your shoes. No, Jesus says we're all just as bad because sin is that pervasive and destructive in us. Job even wrote about the dangers of, of lusting with our hearts and looking with bad intentions. Job 31, 9, If my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait in my neighbor's door, then let my wife go after another. For that would be a heinous crime, and that would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. Now, he hasn't done anything physical yet. For that would be, he says, fire that consumes as far as Abaddon, and it would burn to the root of all my increase. Job 24, 15, again, addresses kind of the the secrecy aspect to this sin. He says, the eye of the adulterer always waits for the twilight, saying, no eye will see me. And he veils his face. 
Again, Jesus' words just lay bare any false ideas that we have about our own innate goodness. That we've checked the right boxes and we're living this thing out and, and, and our grade, we have a pretty good grade from God because of our own righteousness. No, who can hear the words of Jesus and walk away feeling righteous? Friends, if we, if we live in a society that's lowering its standards on marriage and adultery, how much more of unseen integrity and personal holiness? How much more uh, is our culture catering to our uh, sexual lust? And listen, even though this, this verse is clearly addressed to men, and I think this conversation tends to go um, along male lines usually, because maybe that's a more clear kind of outward observation of, of how this sin is manifested. This is not a male-only sin. Uh, it may look differently for men than women, maybe less obvious and perhaps uh, out front. Um, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' description of he was a doctor before he was a preacher, and so he talks about the man who's sitting on his bed and coughing and, and he's running fever, and clearly this guy is sick, but the other man who's sitting in his bed, sleeping and just doing just fine, um, no outward manifestation at all, but has, uh, you know, a tumor or has this deep cancer that is killing him. And, but, but the outward manifestation is different, but the disease is there. And so for, for sisters, as you think about your own heart, um, lust may manifest itself differently, maybe particularly in a in a kind of a lust to be desired or to be sort of wanted to be desirable or to have certain kinds of emotional connections, to be understood in particular ways, pursued in particular ways. But it's still this sin of lust at work in our hearts. This verse cuts to the heart for both men and women, young and old, single and married, we need to be clear, Jesus is not saying temptation is, is sin. We know that Jesus himself was tempted, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we cannot prevent certain thoughts from entering into our minds or coming across our eyes. Sometimes those things are going to, just going to happen. But the, the question is, what happens once they enter? Will we entertain them or will we cast, aside, cast them aside and turn our minds elsewhere? Martin Luther put it this way. He said, we cannot stop birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from building nests in our hair. So friend, how are you doing at shooing away the birds in your life? From, from keeping them from building these nests are you, are you allowing certain thoughts to linger and grow in your mind? Do you give yourself a pass to sort of fantasize about certain things because you had a hard day, a long day, and after all, no one's going to see or be hurt by these thoughts? They're just thoughts. Are there the beginnings of some just inappropriate conversations happening at, at work or, or online or on your phone or just in, in your head? The beginnings of lingering over thoughts or images that should be immediately put away, not, not toyed with. Too often we view those, those things as beginnings, kind of innocent lines that we've drawn not to be crossed. We're not going to cross. And that's kind of the point of Jesus' Jesus's words here. 
No, we've already crossed those lines. When you start to, to make these artificial lines and say, I'm going to go right up to that, but no further because that would be wrong. No, Jesus is saying we've already crossed the line. Ladies, we know that the fashion industry is not a friend of chastity or is it in the business of promoting mod- modesty. I have two daughters and I understand that really well. Are you wise in the things that you purchase and that you want to wear Purposely trying to dress in a way that's modest, attractive, not seductive. There's a difference there. Brothers, where have your eyes taken you this week? Where is your inward life kind of going? John Stott says it this way. Deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame. And the inflaming of the imagination by the indiscipline of the eyes. So it's just inward life leading to outward manifestations. Like anger, lust is not static. It takes us somewhere if we do not fight it. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought about Christians as being hypocritical. So, you know, I know they say they believe all these things and they're supposed to live a perfect life, but I don't know any Christians who live perfect lives. And listen, I think that's right. Uh, you may see us often um, fail, okay? Um, you, and, and you may have even encountered those that are, are living in a way that, that, that sort of says there's something that they're not. But as you read this, I wonder what you think about your own life. Don't you have your own kind of standards of morality that I'm, at least I'm not that bad, but then when you read Jesus' words about even your thoughts that condemn you, how do you respond As he just kind of attacks our perceived goodness. This is what it's like to come into interaction with a holy God. Who is just and right. No matter how much we think that we've we've lived a good life. The truth is we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of the standard God calls us to. And we all deserve his justice. So I just want you to think about that. Where does that leave you? What do you do with the words of Jesus? Well, let's look at the last two verses together as we think about number three. The antidote for adultery. Number three. The antidote for adultery. Now, I say that a little uh, tongue-in-cheek. It's not a, not a pill that we, you prescribe. But after we unpack, I think, what Jesus is showing here, I do think he gives us a path forward. A righteous path that exceeds just trying harder. Just tighter accountability. I'm not saying you shouldn't have accountability. But first, let's just go out. Let's just get the idea out of our minds that Jesus takes this lightly. That he's not that concerned. Uh, Listen to his words and see if you come away with that conclusion. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Do you see what's at stake in this battle? And Jesus is talking about hell. Notice in the description that he gives here, this grotesque imagery of cutting off body parts. I think that shows the grotesque nature of the sin that he's dealing with and the consequences. But what do you take away from that? Well, if we're not battling lust, we're not fighting after this, we're giving ourselves to the worship of our own desires and 
and we're, we're, we're the, the sin of our bodies and unre, unrepentant ways apart from Christ's grace, our whole bodies go to hell. There, there's a picture here of a bodily torment. So we often talk about the resurrection of the body to spend eternity with God and don't think a lot about the resurrection of the body to spend eternity in torment. That's what's at stake here. Friends, it matters what you do with your eyes. It matters what you do with your hands. So much so that Jesus says it'd be better to cut off your right hand. I think he's presuming here that most people are are right-handed. It's the dominant hand. Sorry, lefties. It's the hand that's used for greeting, for work. It can also be used to steal. And I think that in this context, you almost see that connection between stealing, stealing another man's wife. It says it'd be better to go through life without that precious right hand and still make it to heaven than to have your whole body go to hell. That, that right eye, that vehicle for sight and taking in the beauty of creation and, and love can also be the vehicle for wicked perversions of God's creation. Jesus says, pluck it out if you need to do that. Dig it out before it causes your whole body to be eternally, consciously tormented under God's wrath. Jesus is not playing games. He's not making suggestions. This is is a radical kind of view of of eternity here. And although Jesus is speaking in terms that are drastic, I don't think he means literal um, maiming of the body. But we want to be careful not to sort of get there too quickly and dismiss the tone of the whole passage. Like we maybe have done maybe with anger. Well, we're going to go right to righteous anger. Here we might go to, well, he doesn't literally mean that. So chill out. Well, you know, there have been, there have been Christians throughout the, the church history that have taken this literally. Um, I think there are worse mistakes you could make than being overzealous to obey Jesus' words. Um, so this text is one of two passages that prompted Origen, the famous father from Alexandria, to combat his lust by rolling naked over sharp briars. And when that method didn't succeed in taming his desires, he became a eunuch. And it was later that he concluded that, that he had kind of missed the point in what Jesus was, was teaching. But I'll say this, no one accused him of not taking it seriously. So in uh, 325, the Council of Nicaea actually addressed this formal mutilation of your body and condemned it. So I don't think Jesus is advocating self-maiming, but self-denial. It's mortification that he's after, not mutilation. So putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. So Paul says to the Romans, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Provision signals feeding, okay, a a nurturing of the flesh. Are there ways you are making provision, making room, fueling, feeding your flesh? Is it a a sinful thought life? Is it something in secret? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there is a fire within you. Never bring any oil anywhere near it. 
Because if you do, there will be a flame and there will be trouble. So, so mortification may not be cutting off your hand, but, but living as if you had. Living as if you had. So the hand symbolizes kind of actions. So not doing the things that you know you shouldn't do. So cutting off, mutilating that, amputating that, that action. It may not be cutting, cutting off your foot, which Jesus kind of uses later in Matthew. But it may be that you change the places that you're going. That your foot takes you. You, you, you realize these places, these scenarios uh, present opportunity and temptation. And so I'm going to cut those off. It may not be plucking out your eye, but, but living as though you were blind to the things that you once looked at for pleasure. So it, it's a life and death perseverance requiring fight. Again, Paul in Romans 8, 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the, of the body, you will live. So the sacrifice that you make for, for purity may well be your most prized and cherished possession or privileged activity. Think about losing, losing a limb. But we want to learn from, from lizards. A lizard... Um, Guy King writes, when you grasp it, if it suspects nefarious design by you, will unhesitatingly leave its tail in your hand and bolt out of sight. Better to lose my tail than my life, it seems to say. Friends, I wonder if sin seems that horrible to you. Does lust seem that dangerous to, to us? Do we shudder at the very thought of it, like we would shudder at the thought of losing a limb? Brothers and sisters, think about the way that we, in our relationships, in our conversations, in our our prayer for one another, the way that we confess our sin to one another, is this an area that we tend to shy away from? Are we happy and quick to confess other things and here's what's going on, but this area we kind of keep back? Let me encourage you as a member of our church to be someone who can be confided in. Someone who, when, when someone could come to you and, and feel the safety to, to, to share what they're really struggling with. To know that you'll hear it and respond with grace and with truth and in love. And also be the kind of person that's open about your life. Not holding any, any sin kind of close to the vest and, and sort of having this rotation of talking about other things. Don't fight this sin alone. That's what I'm saying. Don't isolate yourself in in this sin, in this regard, but but, but shine light on it by by confessing it and and opening it up to others to pray for you and encourage you with God's word. So certainly Jesus is teaching the mortification of sin as as it relates to lust. But I also think he's fueling us toward how we're to go about it. Okay, so so the only reason a person would mutilate themselves in this way is if they expected something greater down the horizon. Where they're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna be made new at some point. And so I'm willing to go through this life maimed, uh, kind of half a person, because I know something that's coming is better for me. That's the only reason we would do it. So the antidote to lust isn't merely negative. Christianity is not a don't do this religion. That will not get you very far. 
It's a positive relationship with God that gives us a supreme joy, a better satisfaction, a better promise that will transcend this life. And all the pleasures that are before us now, it it presents us true contentment. We're we're not like the man in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 4. We we read this, Ecclesiastes 4.8, the man who says, There's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This is also vanity and an unhappy business, the author says. We are toiling for Jesus, for a greater pleasure, a greater reward, a greater satisfaction. Dying to self is at the same time a commitment to live with Christ. Contentment in what we, what we have, who we are, that's the antidote. So, so think about what the Hebrew says in Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have. Not just your money, not just the house that you have, but Jesus. You, you have God. So, so whatever you have in, level, in, 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 in your riches or your, your house or whatever it is, you can be content with those things because you have the greatest thing. You have God. And we can trust his goodness and providence in our lives no matter what the circumstances are. And, and Paul elaborates on this in his whole life and ministry. This is how he can give his life away so freely. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. How? Because we have God. Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be ab- to abound. In every such circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because that's not just about football. He strengthens us. He satisfies us. So my Christian brother or sister, are you pursuing fulfillment and contentment and joy and satisfaction in God? In Christ, are you actively pursuing that? Really, I think that's what Jesus is after here. I think another layer, another way to look at this passage is to say that Jesus is really confronting the mentality of the Pharisees. He's taking their thinking and turning it upside down. He's showing them that external acts of compliance will not truly solve your problem. You could amputate every limb on your body, every non-vital organ involved in sin and still sin. Still be uh, vulnerable to temptation as long as you have a brain. As long as your heart is beating, the key to sexual purity is to have a circumcised heart, a new heart, a heart in which God's holy law is etched, a new heart that is, that is pure through the rebirth of the Spirit. It's only God grants such a heart in the new birth. This is his new covenant promise. Friends, trying harder and setting new goals isn't the answer. We need to be born again. 
even today. You could be born again today. Turn from your sin. Turn away from trying to live life in your own way, by your own standard, and just understand your sin before God. Know that you're guilty before God in his holy standard. Turn away from that and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Trust the one who lived a perfect life in your place and then took the punishment you deserved on the cross and rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. So that by faith in him, you can have victory over sin and death and live forever and have a heart that is, that is now able to obey and able to wage this war that will rage until he comes again. That's the only true antidote to adulterous hearts or new hearts. Is believe that good news. There is life there in the gospel. There is hope for whoever would come to Christ. Not, not shame. So often these sins bring shame. And Christ has taken the shame away. These sins bring regret. And Christ has paid for the regret. These sins bring death. And he has absorbed the penalty of death for us. As it comes back to Matthew 5.8. Back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart... For they shall see God. This is the good news. This is the good news for the believer. Jesus has given us new, pure hearts, the ability to see God. And now he calls us to, to fight and to mortify and continue to pursue him every day. And so we'll close with one kind of strategy. That, that John Piper gives, um, kind of a five-second battle plan. Uh, when you come across, especially for those of us who live in this, this culture that we live in, when we come across an image or we come across an, an old unholy thought that comes into our mind's eye, this is what he says. In five seconds, <laughs> he says, take the first few seconds and, and pray. So there has to be a tone of, of desperation, right? Take those first few seconds and ask for God's help. Ask, just admit your need for God and ask for his help. And then he advocates, and he's done this for a long time, I appreciate fighting the image or the thought with a greater, more powerful image or thought. And so this is the one that he gives. There's many that we could think on, but I don't know that there's one more powerful than this. He says, demand of your mind to fix your gaze on Christ at the cross. Use all your fantasizing power to see his lacerated back. 39 lashes left little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into the lacerations. The Lord gasps. From time to time he screams out with intolerable pain. He tries to pull away from the wood and the massive spikes through his wrist, rip into the nerve endings, and he screams again with agony and pushes up with the feet, his feet to give him some relief. But the bones and nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish, and he screams again. There is no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath. And thinks that he's suffocating. And suddenly his body involuntarily gasps for air. And all the injuries unite again in pain. 
in torment, he forgets about the crown of two-inch thorns and throws his head back in desperation, only to hit one of the thorns perpendicular against the crossbeam and drive it half an inch into his skull. His voice reaches a soprano pitch of pain and sobs break over his pain-racked body as every cry brings more and more pain. Now we're not thinking about that image anymore. That thought is gone because we're at Calvary. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you to fight well. You have something much, much better than the world has to offer. And it's so much better to forego some experiences in this life and enter true life. Better to endure cultural amputation than risk final destruction in eternity. Stott says it this way, we have to decide quite simply whether to live for this world or the next. Whether to follow the crowd or to follow Christ. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we worship you this morning because we know that you have known the temptation that we have known, whatever it is, loneliness, temptation to sin sexually, or temptation to not trust the Father. We know that you have known all those temptations and you have endured where we have failed. And Lord, your priceless body was destroyed that we might have new life. And that the sin-conquering power that you displayed, the Father displayed, at the resurrection would be at work in our own lives. And Lord, so often we are fighting this battle with our own strength and losing. Lord, I pray that you would bring things out into the open. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of our true weaponry and help us, Lord, as a congregation to to fight this battle well and to leave behind the fleeting mud pies that we've been feasting on because you have prepared for us this feast in glory. Lord, help us. Help us as men, Help us as women, help us as teenagers, younger children, protect us, help us to honor you, let your grace empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.